Film scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross in honor of Disney moving Soul back to November. Do we still get to see Mank this year? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and yeah, Netflix is all we got left. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to say I wish it was true, but I don't think David Fincher is going to be a perfectionist during a pandemic, so I do not <laughs> think we get Mank. But we need Mank! Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going to say yes, because by winter we will need something good, and I'm just going to put it on faith. Mank. And I'm David, yeah, I'm David Ehrlich. Mank, Mank, Mank was definitely my, uh, my answer, but uh, I will say yes. Uh, only because it's Netflix for some reason that, that changes the math. I'm now imagining it, the entire thing getting held up because David Fincher can't get into the physical edit bay where he insists on being able to edit and can't get like the one sound effect and the whole movie gets delayed by six. I would imagine at this point, David Fincher has a uh, editing bay in his house. In his house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but his movies involve so many invisible special effects and CG shots. I don't know. That's true. I mean, can Mank be raw? Raw, the raw Chill. mank. Uncut oh, mank. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 297, Pandemic 6. Holy shit. Uh, it's the week of Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. Uh, that was the day that in 2020 your taxes weren't due. I actually know a lot of fun facts about April 15th because it's my dad's birthday. It was Leonardo da Vinci's birthday and it's the day the Titanic sank. Ooh. You love the Titanic. Love the Titanic. Wait, I didn't know you had a personal connection to the Titanic sinking with your dad's birthday. I mean... That's a personal connection? I don't think it counts as a personal connection. Do I know Barack Obama because we share birthdays? I think Katie has a personal personal connection to the singing of the Titanic just by virtue of uh, having watched Titanic several hundred times right along with me. I've lived through it personally. I know, David, you know what it's like to uh, hear near my God to the on the decks. Mm -hmm. Don't I ever. (laughs) You know, as as I always say, all life is a game of luck. I you do always say that. I really do uh, always say that, regardless of context. <laughs> and you also it say women applies. and machinery don't mix. Uh, I don't say that. How dare you? Uh, but it's, of course, true they don't. I mean, people not Titanic <laughs> would never be wrong about anything. <laughs> Especially not I often say, straight ahead. Right ahead. Wow. I say it was wow. It's, uh, Is Patches going to say more French words this week? Patches, Patches. <laughs> Patch's relationship to the Titanic is clearly not nearly as intimate as Katie's. No, no definitely not. How I was more you? of a uh, Lusitania or whatever. <laughs> I can't land that joke. Whoops. <laughs> no, that was actually pretty good. Thank you. Um, I hear we have no reviews. Uh, we have no reviews. About Titanic, we'll get some. <laughs> well, we are now going to take this time to individually shame every single one of our listeners. We're socially <laughs> distancing ourselves from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, please, uh, please leave us a reviews uh, on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. We will read them on the show. It, it would be great, especially these days, to hear from you out there. Uh, now more than ever, as they say about movies and also iTunes reviews. So please do leave us a review so we have something else to do in this part of the show next week.
pandemic check-in. How long before we get a theme song in pandemic check-in? We get to just make one up. All right, here we go. Patches. We're going to do like a exquisite corpse uh, pandemic check-in line-by-line song. You ready to go? Um, no, but yes. <laughs> um, how do we begin? We take a deep breath with our masks on. We... It's time for pandemic check-in. This is just a backdoor way of Dave getting the musical episode he's always threatened. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect theme. That's really good. Uh, yeah, it's time for the pandemic check-in. Um, it's, we're still here. And uh, I think what we wanted to start with uh, this week is uh, David and... Um, Probably some of you watched uh, a different type of SNL this weekend, uh, Saturday Night Live from Home. There was a series of uh, sketches put together from uh, the cast members' homes. Uh, there was some. There was a Zoom sketch, I think, that like put everything together. But for the most part, it was a variety show assembled of uh, individual people's uh, content. David, did did it work for you? Oh, here I was prepared to talk about how I'm overcome with depression during the uh, pandemic all of a sudden. But, uh, sure, we can <laughs> talk about it. Is it because SNL. of SNL? It is. It was directly triggered by the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the middle-aged Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles segment that they did in the middle of the episode, which I found very funny, but also uh, also very unnerving. Um, <laughs> no, I, I've been, you know, not, not, not that it's preferable to the real thing in any of these cases, but in... Uh, in lieu of nothing, I have been enjoying all of the uh, at-home versions of the late-night shows. Just the fact that someone is out there and doing their thing. I also enjoy the morning versions. Uh, I am sort of a semi-ironic uh, Kelly and Ryan watcher in the morning. It's usually only the first 10 minutes when they just riff uh, on the air about nothing. But um, the fact that everyone's out there and Skyping and Zooming in and doing their things, I find uh, a a small bit of comfort um and so i was happy in theory anyway that snl came together to make an episode this week it's unclear right that that like their plan for doing more of these i know this was kind of billed as a one-off special but it seemed as if there wouldn't be anything stopping them from doing this again a couple weeks down the line if they if they had the time only to right I guess it can't cost much. They must all be getting paid anyway. Yeah, I guess there's like, and they, NBC could sell ads against it better than a rerun. I don't know what the economic Sure, is. yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, what it, I would think the greatest pressure other than on whoever has to stitch the whole thing together has to be on the individual performers to complete, to come up with bits that uh, are almost entirely self-reliant. Uh, I mean, like there were a couple bits that, uh, like the, the inevitable Zoom parody uh, that involved six members of the cast and i actually found very very funny thanks to uh kate mckinnon and um uh why do i keep forgetting her name uh star shrill 80 80 bryant so funny um but uh you know a lot of them like from the opening one after the monologue anyway with pete davidson doing a parody drake song and then uh that girl whose name I also know on Saturday nights and oh, on Monday nights have forgotten. Names. No, I'm getting everybody's name. My mind is totally shot. I think it goes hand in hand with the aforementioned depression. Um, but uh, the who did her Timothy Chalamet impression, which is also funny. Uh, but I, I just like the sort of we're going to put on a show 
element of it, which should underwrite most Saturday Night Live episodes, but doesn't really translate because that show is such an institution and it's so you know star studded and and moneyed and you don't really get that scrappy feeling that you had implicit to uh, this at home episode. And so I really enjoyed you know that that they made the effort that they uh, tried to have some sort of tether to people out there you know as tom hanks said in his uh, characteristically charming opening monologue you know uh, some of the some of the bits were going to be good and some of the ones were not um but and that's how it played out and i ended up checking out after weekend update as i usually do um and i ended up missing what i hear was a pretty heartfelt tribute to the late music supervisor uh who had worked on snl for a long time in addition to his role in uh, the greater rock sphere but uh yeah, I don't know. I think it's been interesting seeing all these shows do it. I was not surprised that Conan was sort of on the vanguard, given his addiction to, to working, um, which works out well for his fans, that he was the first host to return. Um, and then, you know, Colbert and, and Fallon and the rest followed suit. I like uh, that John Oliver seemed to have like a categorical improvement from his first uh, late last week tonight episode where he really was struggling with the lack of uh, laughter from the audience, from a audience. Um, and I think understood the rhythms of delivering the jokes to a void a lot better. Are we moving into week? a pro John Oliver podcast now? This is stunning. Shame on you. Shame on you, Katie Rich. No, I mean, I am, we are, we are pro John Oliver, even if his, uh, Patois gets a little bit old, but, um, you know, and I thought that the, the righteous anger he brought to this episode in particular, you know, which is not to say it's missing from the others, um, was, uh, was well needed. Um, you know, Bill Maher flailing a little bit in his time slot as he is wont to do, but I, I have been generally heartened by, uh, the fact that these shows are simply existing more than that matters more to me. It's getting more under my skin than the actual quality. Have you guys been watching anything? I've been watching them in snippets, and I think what's interesting that you kind of touched on here, and I want to dwell on that a bit more, is when these shows started. Um, I mean, I, I was I was keen to watch all the clips and and see how people were going to try and do their shows under these circumstances, and it was it was fun, and and in a meta way too. Like the the hosts know that this is not how the shows are supposed to be done, and they're poking fun at themselves because it's shaggy. Now we're weeks into it and it's still going. And I think that's interesting in itself where we're, this is how we know these shows now. Eventually, I mean, this is not ending soon, I don't think. Or maybe people will be able to. I think it's going to end on Friday. Oh, good. Good. I'm waiting for you to let us know, David. Yeah. Um, I'm calling it. (laughs) Okay, great. Thanks, Trump. Um, And and for these shows to kind of settle into a groove where we're expecting this quality, this picture quality, this shagginess, it's built in. Um, And I wonder if we'll get more and more comfortable with that. And I was kind of floating this online and I I got Dave to perk up uh, on Twitter the other night because I was watching the um, really excruciating uh, horse competition on ESPN. ESPN has been trying to figure out what to air now that there are no sports um, old Games is one option. Uh, documentaries is another option. They're going to be showing some sports movies to fill the time. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> but they also wrangled a bunch of retired basketball players, current basketball players, WNBA players um, to compete in a game of horse that was essentially filmed on GoPro cameras and iPhones uh, in their personal 
not, I mean, some of them are because they are like millionaires who have retired from the NBA, have full courts in their homes. And some of them are WNBA stars who spend half their year in Russia playing Russian circuits. And they were literally just in like the black top of behind their house uh, shooting hoops. <laughs> and that was cool. But my God, like this is I'm watching ESPN, one of the biggest channels still on cable television. And a 10 year old is shooting the footage that I'm watching because it is an iPhone that a son there, this guy's son is shooting for him. And it really just don't. And there was no soundtrack. It was really eerie. It was not a well-produced show. Um, but I wonder if most people give a shit and if the entire circumstance of all of these shows having to do shoddy work uh, under the circumstances is going to lower the kind of aesthetic appreciation or the like the, the bar of what we demand out of production value or if we'll all be retreating to like the highest production value possible if that will be the big play once things are back. I don't, uh, how do you think that watching these shows in this way may affect us going forward or what we what we want or need from tv i remember floating the idea that we wouldn't want high production values anymore after this like early on thinking about specifically whether or not people would go to movie theaters anymore or like give a shit about expensive movies and um i still don't really know what to think about movie theaters but i think that the high production value thing is going to really sing like doesn't the idea of watching like even a Marvel movie with like endless CGI, like doesn't that feel appealing right now where we've just been stuck watching everything filmed on people's iPhones and endless zoom calls for a month I mean, now. I was I clamoring for uh, a, yeah. a regular episode of SNL. That's how bad things have gotten. <laughs> I was like, geez, I, I want to have that guy playing the sax behind Daniel Craig as he walks out. I want to have, I mean, the sets for SNL are remarkable. So I don't mean that as a slight against SNL, but you know what I mean? I was yeah. clamoring for that. As I told our colleague Joe Reed the other night, uh, the real antidote, the real uh, solution to COVID-19 is uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which is probably just going to melt our brains. We, we've been so... The movie that Tom Hanks was making when he got coronavirus. Wait, is that true? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that's why he was oh, in yeah. Australia. Oh, no. He's well, playing Carl Parker. Yeah, of course it involves Tom Hanks. It just begins with Tom Hanks. I can't imagine the production value we'll get out of something like that. It's going to melt our brains. I mean, I think, you know, just to, to tap into today's news, if we can call it that, uh, I, uh, when we saw the first photo from uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune of uh, Timothy Chalamet uh, walking. Where, where, where did you where did you see that? Where? Uh, I saw it on IndieWire.com. Uh, on IndieWire.com. <laughs> No, I saw it on Twitter retweeted by like seven Timothy Chalamet stands. Whoever controls the spice cannot control the temperatures. And while, while it looks, you know, uh, as bleak and oppressive as every other Denis Villeneuve movie, I would have to imagine that the, uh, the austere production value of that movie will will be as I, I know. I think you're trending towards Marvel with good reason because you want that like that. You think the poppiness and the color of that will be the best antidote to this, and I think that's probably right. But um, I think you know any of those really gussied up uh, end of the year movies are are going to seem extra glossy and uh, like in the I, heights. Like just, oh yeah, everyone's going to like go see in the heights and like the minute. The first minute where there's a bunch of people in the streets in New York, like walking around freely, everyone's just going to weep and uh, give it best picture, probably. Yeah. So. I mean, I don't want to wander down the road of like, you know, when realistically movie theaters will be uh, a viable place to return to. But uh, I do think that In the Heights is probably the best possible programming to open them back up. 
He's not in Hollywood. What were you saying, Patches? I was going to say, Dave, what do you what do you make of all of this? Oh, uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> okay, let, me, let me see if I could cycle through it here. Uh, I've been watching the late night shows. I kind of like the ones that treat it more like a full production because the amount of staff that they have is good. But as, you know, video production uh, it gets more intertwined with technology, uh, you need fewer and fewer people to actually, like, get the jobs done. So for late night hosts, I think... Uh, I'm a little bit less forgiving because they are, it is about like delivery and it is, um, about, uh, format, uh, which aren't necessarily things, uh, that I find necessarily charming. Like when Stephen Colbert did like his first show, like by a fire pit and there was like constant wind noise. I was like, I feel like we're living in an age now where if you tell a teenager to make a video, they know not to make it in the wind. Uh, with a microphone <laughs> like that. So it oh looks really uh, bad yeah. when it's on like broadcast, uh, television. Uh, but that being said, I think there's also the flip side that's going to come along with it, which I think what you were sort of hinting towards is, um, the same sort of thing that happened, uh, when video sort of like moved into like the YouTube era and we've got a sort of different look at what sort of like content what sort of rhythms we could see in our narrative content uh, got sort of like YouTubeized. So now I think if you uh, go to somebody who consumes a lot of media, uh, they will be able to tell like pre YouTube content to post YouTube content, sort of like a pre MTV video content versus a post MTV video content, like the visual language sort of changed. I think we might be right on the cusp of something like that. I don't think we're going to, tolerate necessarily poor quality and you know 10 year olds shooting espn videos but i do think things are going to get a little bit uh more lax about uh the reality of how you get instantly broadcast footage uh, now that you can get it broadcast and uh things like aspect ratio and color correction are gonna i think start to be automated like uh, i've sort of sort of been thinking about it in conjunction with our Quibi uh, discussion from mm. last week. Wait, remember Quibi? Yeah. Mm, I'm still watching Dismantled. But like, <laughs> it, it seems weird to have like shows, narrative shows that are in, you know, horizontal and vertical bars, but now all of a sudden that's going to be something that we have to deal with in the next few months because shows that are being produced right now are only being shot the ways that ESPN shot horse. So the people, no matter you know who's producing them the same like quality of footage is going to come in and so it's going to be interesting to see how television mashes that and then how we adapt to it and then how when we're back to it we all are able to talk to each other in like a visually different way i mean just like sort of the fact that your grandmother i'm not talking to the the great uh audience's grandmother your grandmother probably knows what a zoom call looks like now is evidence of like that sort of community visual communication jump Based on my grandmother accidentally FaceTiming me at 9.30 at night the other night, I'm guessing <laughs> no, she doesn't. Oh, well, she knows, she, she may not know the finer rules of it, but it's not, uh, you know, a completely alien concept to her now. She's more so. of a Blue Jeans fan. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, to each their own. But now you could show her unfriended and she won't be like, what's happening? So that's what I'm, I'm wondering if we'll see a boom in either 
more like found footagey style reality shows or just more found footage in general? Or are we going to like, maybe it's not even a demand. It's not like movies or TV shows would have to be shot this way. I just think, I wonder if they will. I wonder if people, even after the pandemic subsides and we kind of go back to somewhat normal life, if the aesthetic of the pandemic era will continue. Um, I certainly think we'll see a boom in reality TV shows because they can be quickly produced and cobbled together and they can be new and fresh. So that's kind of what happened ish after nine 11, if I recall, or there was a lot of shutdowns and after the writer's strike too. Um, so these, these hiccups in production force people to create reality TV. And I wonder if we'll see this aesthetic continue on. Although that's the silver lining I find every time uh, I hear about a show that being scrapped in the middle of production or, or postponed or a movie that had to stop shooting in the middle of production is that, you know, those things are further along, particularly something like Fargo on uh, FX is you know, towards the finish line. They were still shooting the last episodes of the season and those will be ready to go relatively quickly once yeah. those people are able to get back to work. And so and it won't be this is, like huge stopgap. How they'll how they'll shoot them under the circumstances. That yeah, no, yeah. Like Nightmare Alley. I've, I've been reading Nightmare Alley, the Guillermo, the Guillermo del Toro book, the, uh, the novel that is the uh, source material for Guillermo del Toro's forthcoming movie. And uh, I, I, yeah, I just thinking so much about how, how trying to translate that story would be fucked up by, um, having to take a, a force interruption in the middle of shooting. There are so many moving parts in any movie, but especially a story that covers that kind of ground. I don't really know how they're going to do it, how they're going to maintain uh, the consistency between crews and, and cast. And I guess if everything is kicked down the football field, then, uh, you know, if the project that that Kate Blanchett had lined up for a couple of weeks after um, Nightmare Alley, uh, if that will still be a couple of weeks down the road. I mean, obviously it won't be that clean and things are location and, and time specific, but hopefully there'll be, you know, some order to the chaos that unfolds from that. And hopefully some of these movies, you know, have developed further enough and, and, and spent enough resources that they, uh, that they feel compelled to be finished. I mean, Can you imagine uh, the day that, like, they determined that, like, film production can resume, like, the agents who are going to be, like, sitting by their phones with their assistants be like, roll calls, roll calls, get my client yeah. ready. Like, I mean, I, like that's, you know, Paul, Jerry Maguire. Paul Schrader was, yeah, I mean, Paul Schrader was five days away from finishing uh, physical production on his movie with Oscar Isaac. And, you know, now that movie may never see the light of day, or if it does, it might be Frankenstein together in some form. I mean, it's, it's going to be a very strange situation. And, uh, you know, I look forward to a day when we have the luxury of seeing how that all plays out. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, you talked kind of about the macro. Will these projects feel cohesive or will they be, will they will they finish in the form that they started? But I'm even thinking about, like, how do you physically shoot movies in the aftermath of this? Like, obviously, we'll, we'll soon go outside and resume some sort of normal life, but we'll probably still be distancing. We'll be wearing masks. We'll play it safe. Um, but how do you do that with a giant crew on a giant like Marvel movie? Uh, do actors kiss in scenes? Wild. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I was talking to a friend of mine who produces television and who produced some sitcoms uh, early on in the FX days when, yeah, you can make an FX comedy show with like 10 crew members and run around New York and shoot TV. And I wonder if we'll see more of that type of television too down the road like is something 
shaggier but not quite zoom call level uh, more indie t- style tv because you could only have so many people in the same place at once um i don't yeah. know how you do a marvel tv show i mean i wonder this if scale. Uh, this is semi-sincere but I, I think you know uh you were talking about actors kissing on on sets and it just made me think of the protocols that are in place for people in the porn industry and having to be tested every two weeks and um yeah, and you know before they do certain scenes and you know to a different extent, um, that's the kind of testing, not, obviously not for uh, STDs, but uh, even temperature checks that we need to be ubiquitous in this country to have a return to. Right? Like everyone will have a yeah. thermometer every big. Event. Right. And of course, since the virus is contagious, even before you're showing symptoms, I mean, the thermometer is not going to cut it. You may have a lot of, particularly when you have like a deep pocketed production, like a Marvel movie. I mean, you may have requirements or crew members have to get spot to. And by in this scenario in my head, tests are not only available, but also, uh, you know, a big problem that we see in this country right now is you can get a test in some places, but the results don't come back for seven days uh, or longer. And, um, you know, in, in this imagined scenario, maybe it's you have this faster turnaround, almost instant, and you have to be tested to get onto the set. I don't know. You but, push uh, all are... the Marvel movies back and you pull all the avatars forward because this yes. is what they've yes. been waiting for. Yes. <laughs> there is a silver lining. They're just the like, we could just do you, us. we could shoot it all one person at a time. And James Cameron's like, fuck yes, he's in a bubble already on the set, just like so actors could come <laughs> if, in and out. If this you, is how Avatar 2 becomes the highest grossing movie of all time, <laughs> I, like somehow it all makes sense. I don't know. Does connecting Navi hair braids count as social distancing? <laughs> Can the coronavirus be spread between Navi hair? Uh, <laughs> and the home tree catches? <laughs> Can the home tree spread it? I think that's yeah. where it may have originated. Yeah. I read some things on QAnon that suggest uh, <laughs> it, was it may have come from there. Along. Yeah, but I, I think Sully! they've already shot so much, so much, if not all of those Avatar sequels, and the rest is just doing special effects work. They're like, sure, why not? Those could be the big blockbuster tickets we have going forward. Just, uh, it could be that and nothing Avatar else. Avatar and a bunch of fucking animated movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's been this week's pandemic check <laughs> this is also this is also David would have to spend less time talking about Crash. Yeah, also, right. also David has to spend less time talking about Crash. One Fine Day on HBO. It's on HBO right now. I'd never seen it. Um, I like because uh, I was texting David Sims and I was trying to figure out what to watch, and he said he had watched One Fine Day and suggested that I watch it. And I said okay because I wanted something low key to watch on Friday after doing a large Zoom call with all of my college friends. Um, and it was kind of exactly the right thing. Like it's a '90s movie I hadn't seen that I was aware of. Like just basically knowing it was George Clooney and Michelle Pfeiffer and a day and. I remember them being in a cab together with their kids. One of the kids is played by Mae Whitman, who has gone on to have a long career as an adult, uh, which is fascinating. Um, and it is the kind of movie that you see that we all grew up on. And you don't like you kind of know instinctively that they don't make movies like this anymore. But really, like, comes into relief when you watch this movie where you're like, OK, it takes place in a single day. And it's just about 
two people who are adults with jobs and parents and they just flirt and then fall in love and some like hijinks happen and that's kind of the whole movie like it's not just that we don't make rom-coms anymore it's that we don't make anything with this kind of low stakes where she has to do the presentation to keep her job and he has to get the source to confirm his story and like the kids have to get to the soccer game in time and um it's like it's it's, it's very maybe more stressful than it would have been if I had watched it back when I had childcare. Cause the whole time where she's like, I need someone to watch the kids so I can get on the phone. I'm like, Oh no, I can't <laughs> think too relatable. Um, but also the thing that I wanted to bring to you guys, I don't know if you have any, have any of you seen one fine day? Uh, yeah. On cable a million years ago. Sure. I'm sure. sure. That, that's it. That's all we got. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, not, it, I mean, it is, Hit it it is available to you if you want something soothing. I needed to point out to all of us having done, I think our last quarter call was the one about New York movies where it was all, it all took place over a course of one night. This is a, a more unusual one crazy day movie in New York. And I believe I'm going to get this right. That if from at 5 PM, they are at city hall for a press conference at 5:30, They are at uh, 21 club, which is on the Upper East side for her to have drinks with a client at 5:50, Cause they keep showing the time. Cause it's like showing the course of the crazy day at 5:50. They stop to pee at Carnegie Deli, and then by six o'clock they are at soccer practice somewhere near Bethesda Fountain in the middle of Central Park. Just letting you know that all of that travel I mean, happens. Over but the what are what, what movies actually get the geography of New York right in that way? I mean, not movies that just like take place in a well-realized uh, New York, but one that actually spans the city and still manages to get the geography right. Oh, I mean, I remember thinking this about Nick and Nora's Infinite. No, playlist. no, 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 no. Our, I was just oh. about to put pull that example up as the of the as very that thing. <laughs> <laughs> they're like uh, in the yeah, East I mean, Village in Williamsburg the whole time. I remember it doing well. Yeah, but then they go to Union Pool at one point, uh, which is not supposed to be in Brooklyn, I believe. I mean, it is in Brooklyn in real life. It's Williamsburg, but I think that they're like just going to some other place downtown and magically are transported to another borough. Uh, I could be, I could be wrong about that but i remember that always sticking in my craw they do go to union pool but i feel like it's clear that they go over the williamsburg bridge but anyway if um, it is then my apologies to both nick and nora (laughs) movies play like new york movies play with geography all the time it's just rare that it gives you specific times where they're like they are supposed to have gotten from city hall to 21 club in like 15 minutes which like maybe now uh... you can do it does it What's take the... like, during a pandemic? Because <laughs> yeah, well, I'm wondering. I, I would like someone to time themselves in a cab from oh my God. 21. I right took now. an Uber. I took an Uber from uh, 45th Street and Fifth Avenue to Clinton Hill in Brooklyn uh, two weeks ago, and it took like 20 minutes. It, just, <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> like um, you're traveling in the middle of the night all the time. Yeah, exactly. It was. It was. I mean, it was like traveling at 4 a.m. It was crazy. Um, but, uh, oh, I was, what's the, the movie with Joseph Gordon Levitt playing a bike messenger? I feel like it's a premium rush. It's a particularly egregious example of a movie that fucks up New York geography. I've never seen that one. Power of the bike. Power of the bike. Yeah. I mean, you can just basically teleport across the city. I have Um, one, one fine day question, Katie. Yes. It sounds like a very pleasant movie like sitcom is that how it plays like yeah 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 exactly that's exactly how it feels like it's a little bit more movie-ish because like she's a single mom trying to juggle like a kid i mean i guess it doesn't make it sound any less sitcom-ish like you could it, it gets into the gender politics of the 90s where she's like i'm a woman who can have it all and he's like women like you are what makes me not want to date again after my divorce like yeah. it feels like 
very dated in that way. Um, but it, I mean, it really feels like a, um, you, you feel Sex and the City coming a few years later about like a slightly different group of New Yorkers, but like with some of the same ideas behind it. Um, but yeah, it's like a, it's a feature length sitcom with George Clooney, who's an incredible movie star and Michelle Pfeiffer, who's an incredible movie star. And you get to watch them like make out in the end. It's, I, I can't argue with it. I enjoyed it. That was George Clooney while he was still on ER. Uh, he, so, has yeah. C- he has the Caesar cut in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get like messed up by the rain a little bit. And also, mm-hmm. I did notice, like, because you know, he's a, I have, I'm not an ER expert, but I know he was a pediatrician, and he is really good with the kids um, who are in the cast, which you definitely notice. Yeah. Dr. Doug Ross. Uh, I assume missing, you've gotten past the era of oh, ER. Far past. Uh, Lisa and I are currently in season nine, um, where there are very few of the original cast members still kicking around. And season sadly, nine of how many? 15 wow and we're still waiting for uh for what's his face jesse papadopoulos um uh come on uncle jesse stamos john stamos to show up yeah which is really when the worm will have turned i don't know when that happens but uh uh it 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 can't it can't be late enough (laughs) um because like the lack of turnover like every time one of the main cast leaves like when peter benton Eric LaSalle left the show like the middle of season eight sweeps, the like December episode. Uh, it was heartbreaking for Elisa and I, and uh, we're already in pretty fragile emotional states of mind. <laughs> so, um, and then that, that was hardly the only big loss in that season. Uh, we still have Noah Wiley and Carrie Weaver, old and strong. Anyway, this is about ER, right? You got your ball, you got your chain. Tied to me, tight, tight, we are bugging. Who's got the claws in you, my friend? Into your heart, heart, beat again. Sweet like dead to my soul. Sweet you rock and sweet you roll. Lost for you, I'm so lost for you. All right, Matt Patches. You watched so the movie. So mad at you, Patches. So <laughs> mad at you. And then you were like, I watched this movie. Let's talk about it. And Katie's like, you know what? I'll watch some of this movie. And now Katie's mad. For what did you do to, what did you do to the podcast, Patches? I watched for the first time an Oscar winning, a best picture winning film from the year. 2004. It's called Crash. I'm sorry, it's mm. Paul Haggis's Crash. It's definitely from the year 2005. Oh, no, actually, I'm sorry. It played uh, TIFF in 2004 and then actually came out. You know, this is the fun fact. It came out in a few theaters, but not enough to qualify for the Oscars, and it got a wider release in 2005 so that it could win the Best Picture in 2006. Just putting it out there. Interesting. The point is, Crash is notoriously awful, um, has been dragged for the last 15 years since it won Best Picture, has some defenders. Roger Ebert was a huge fan of Paul Haggis's uh, race relations drama. But even Paul Haggis in the years, uh, you know, he's constantly asked about this. Maybe not anymore since he's, uh, I believe he's going through some sexual misconduct me too uh drama that should be reported on and someone can talk about more 
But anyway, the point wow, is wow, that way to pass the buck over to everybody else. Yeah, like somebody somebody figure out what he did. Uh he but he did he's done other bad things besides Crash. Um but as he's been interviewed about this film over the years, he's even said like May, was it the best picture of the year? I don't know. That's a very subjective thing to say. It's really it really impacted people. That's kind of his been go-to line that when this film came out in 2005, it slowly made money. It definitely it made like 100 million dollars worldwide in the end. Um, and it hit people, right? This movie did go on to win Best Picture. So something about this movie worked for people. It's something surprised people. It's something got people voting for it. And watching it for the very first time, finally catching up with this notorious movie, I, I think it's obvious what. And it's it's people in L.A. being surprised that any of this could be real. And it's such a blunt force object of uh, rhetoric and, and discussion. There's, there's no human characters in this movie. There's no human dialogue in this movie. It's a one long Twitter thread of commentary on, on race. And it is blunt, man. And I, I don't think it's a very good movie, but here was my nuanced take because Dave told me this movie is awful and Katie's angry. I think it, I think it is, it probably felt so important. It felt so fresh when it came out because I mean, when were we really having these conversations in 2005, we were in the Bush era and we were dealing with a certain type of Islamophobia, but this was extending it to everything. This was like every single person in this country is racist on some level. And that's, it's a almost ridiculous thing for two white guys to be writing this movie and ludicrous to be reading dialogue that Paul Haggis wrote. But, uh, <laughs> Because I, he I, I went on to read the dialogue from the Fast and Furious movies, which are um, far my, more nuanced. My side take is that Ludacris is the best actor of this movie, and he's also the best actor in all of the Fast and Furious movies. I I love Ludacris. Um, but I, I was thinking watching this movie, like the police violence, the conversation, the blunt conversations about race. I don't think we were having these conversations in a meaningful way, in a, in a mainstream way, until after Ferguson to be quite honest. And, and the Black Lives Matter movement really came about and really slapped us all across the face and said, wake up to what's been happening in this country for years and years and years. It never stopped. Um, and I can understand why Crash became an important film for people to vote for in 2006 Oscars. What do you make of that? Even Are you suggesting that it's sort of like a, I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I, if I could have <laughs> picked for the Academy? I think so, but maybe a little more meaningful than that. I don't know. I mean, the the lessons it imparts are real. The dialogue that people get. The, what are Jesus, the lessons it imparts, though? That we should be conscious drive of this more existing. Safely. Yeah, drive safely. <laughs> don't crash into people. Don't be racist. Don't call your uh, locksmith amigo if you are. Uh, oh, man, that line is really bad. What, uh, what's her name? Sandra Bullock. Oh, she has a worthless role in this movie. None of the female characters are good. No, Except it's okay. She, she falls the down the stairs. She has, she she has, has the one line. She has the one true cultural legacy of Crash, which is the line, I'm angry all the time and I don't know why, which has become way more relevant than anything in the movie. Well, what, so what is your take on this movie? Having rewatched 20 minutes of it, having seen it before and been, uh, you're in deep on all Oscar talks. So I'm sure that Crash has come up time and time again for you, Katie. What do you think about crash i mean crash doesn't come up in any like like there's very rarely actual conversations about crash which is part of why your that's why trick here this is interesting. Is I, mind-blowing this, is, <laughs> this podcast is really going to move we haven't had this kind of conversation minds. before 
Um, it just it's it stands in as a, a symbol for a bad best picture winner, especially because it beat Brokeback Mountain, which was a great movie. Um, remains a great movie. Um, I watched like forty minutes of it. It was all like I didn't remember Don Cheadle being in it weirdly, even though he's in the first he's scene and a producer. It. I know I had no, <laughs> I just like didn't remember any of his parts. Um, and I didn't finish it, so I don't remember how his story turns out. Obviously, um, but it's one of those movies. I mean, it's it. it Create an entire like subgenre of like hyperlink stories while well, these things connect. And it's all about a theme. So every single scene in the movie is going to involve someone evoking race in some way and usually not very subtly. And it's one of those movies that you can watch as a person. If you think of yourself as a good person who is not racist, you can look at this movie and be like, well, I mean, I'm not like these people. Like, I would never like call someone amigo or like I would never assume someone was trying to cheat me because they're Mexican or that they're going to steal my car because they're black and it's trying to like get around all these things being like well you assumed these guys were going to do this one thing but they weren't actually going to because they're a human being but it all again revolves around the idea that every single interaction these people have is about race like on the surface and not in all these subtle ways that i think it takes people a lot longer to understand and when you talk about us like grappling with race after ferguson like I think for me and plenty of other white people, things like that brought up ideas of race embarrassingly late into our adulthoods that um, a movie like Crash was never at all equipped to bring up. Yeah, if we if Crash would have done its job, then we, it wouldn't have taken Ferguson. We would have been having those conversations. I don't I don't think that Crash is like bad in the sense like it shouldn't have been made or like people who want to discuss like these race ideas shouldn't do it it's just like having giving it a best picture winner when it's such a shoddy piece of drama it's a melodrama first of all second of all it's like katie was saying so big i get you were both saying it it's so big that there's no real characters so what are you even like watching at that point it's basically it's like watching a parable but it's not a parable that i think is imparting the an actual message it's just being like and we should really look at this and then otherwise it's just doing that interconnected you know like domino effect of unseen consequences that i don't think is Good. I don't. I, I don't know. It has. Yeah, some... it's kind of like watching a, a faith-based film. Yes, um, it feels like a lot like that. <laughs> and it definitely had the budget of one. I mean. Oh yeah, I mean this movie was not supposed notes. to be anything. Like it was like cobbled together from like ten different production companies, and like took forever to get like r- get released. You, uh, Wikipedia: Paul Haggis shot parts of the movie in his own house and also on the set of Monk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the show Which that explains why Monk? On? No, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, the, the movie, Dave, you make, make a good point, which is like, why, or no, Katie, you said this, which is like, why does it let people off the hook? I, I wasn't really thinking about that while watching it, that it's so exaggerated that maybe people watch it were like, oh, good thing I'm not like that. Um, yeah. which is, a, which I think would be something people thought in 2006 and people would never think today. It, it's a, it's a rare film that feels so wound up in the era that it came out. Like you cannot watch it fresh. Now it, it obviously has no legacy. It cannot stand up to scrutiny today, but I, I tried to put myself in the headspace of what 2005 was like and how, you know, we didn't have Twitter. We weren't as connected as we are today. We didn't have, the type of issues always being uh, spotlighted for, for us. Um, 
the movie had a point to make. It's really quite sloppy and didactic. But I will say, too, there's some, like, tense scenes. This, this, did you get to the car scene, Katie? Did you get to the, 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 car crash oh, you, the scene where the two cars crash into each other? No, that's actually the first scene where they <laughs> crash into each other. There's multiple, and then the last scene they car. There's multiple crashes. This is the one. No, where she I remember. I remember the Tanny Newton scene. He like rescues her from a burning car, even though he's like molested her earlier in the movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't. I didn't get to that scene. But that I is the content of of the scene. It has the flair of an episode of Twenty Four. Combined with <laughs> deep racism. <laughs> Doesn't he also slow down on for like a gunfight later on too? So later in the movie, there is a Zolly, a zoom dolly shot on uh, Michael Pena because he believes that his daughter has been shot by, uh, I have to look it up that guy's name, um, the guy who owns the bodega that he thinks uh, Michael Pena has vandalized. And his daughter is not shot. He had a uh, spoiler alert for crash. Uh, there were blanks in his gun. His daughter didn't buy him real ammunition, but it, it, we still get like a minute and a half long screaming shot, which later became a poster for crash. Michael Pena zollying in on the space going, <laughs> very over <laughs> a little, a little melodramatic. Um, this, this movie, it is a strange oddity. I'm, I'm glad I've seen it now though, because I don't think you can, I think people drag this movie and, and don't know why it became popular. And that's more important than it being the awful best picture winner. We need the context. We need to know why this movie is a failure so that these movies don't happen again. Uh, it, but didn't it already happen again? I mean, like, isn't it genetically pretty similar to something the Green Book? I mean, it's a movie that I think plays on uh, white liberal guilt and yeah. twisting it into like a very sort of ersatz kind of uh, bullshit wisdom and yeah, uh, paves over a lot of years. this is our fault yeah and then yeah we should have talked about crash you know otherwise history repeats itself as it did um <laughs> and people didn't recognize green book for what it was or at least not enough of them in the academy but uh and now there's probably like a refractory period for a couple of years where at least for the next like four or five years another green book can't pull off the same uh the same success there's at least all a little not bit too wary explicitly about race like it can be right some other version but then you know in in uh 2029 david you know, gonzalez's you know, speedy gonzalez animated film wins best picture 2029 <laughs> i mean because it's that, the only thing anyone can make with social distancing still. that sounds fantastic <laughs> you know i was watching i was uh I was watching, uh, just because I saw it on, on Netflix this afternoon, uh, The Mask of Zorro, which I haven't seen in a very, yes. very long time. I remember being an excellent movie, but I was <laughs> I was struck, you know, something I certainly didn't think about when I was a little white kid in Connecticut and was uh, 13 years old when this movie came out, is that I don't know if there's a single uh, Mexican actor who has a major role in that movie. I haven't vetted the statement, but certainly... Um, uh, Antonio Banderas, Catherine Zeta Jones, Anthony Hopkins. I mean, like this movie was canceled uh, before uh, a single frame of film was shot if it was made today. But um, I mean, it's pretty egregious back then, but still a fun movie. Uh, anyway, that, apropos of nothing. Go no, ahead, no, 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 that's a, that, that's, a, that's a great put thing to end on. Uh, Mask of Zorro streaming right now is pretty good. And uh, Patches Watch Crash. I would recommend the scene with Keith David where he tells uh, Ryan Philippe he can't quit or is there a later one? 
No, that that's he gets one big scene. He's just grinning the whole time. It's a, it's actually an excellent scene. There's a that's a really good scene, and Loretta Devine has a very good scene where Matt Dillon does one of the most disgusting monologues I've ever seen. Just like railing on Loretta Devine about how older white men should have her job. Uh, it's just the while asking her for help. While asking her for help. <laughs> the help for yeah. the dying father. <laughs> what is this? Why is this happening? Um, the point was made. There are racists. Well, I'm glad that you didn't come away being like, well, guys, Crash. Like, I really think it's time to revisit and, like, appreciate Crash. <laughs> no, I'm more identifying it as, yes, you were all correct. <laughs> not a good movie. <laughs> I so look what, forward to, uh, in 10 years, doing the same thing about Green Book. Yeah, I'll no. never. Yeah. I could do it for Cats, right? No, Cats, <laughs> cats is, is fun bad. Apparently. Still haven't seen that. You still haven't seen Cats? No. No, he hasn't heard Hamilton either. So uh, I, I, uh, he, I also he just, have he not... He just got to crash. I yeah. also have not seen Cats. Oh, so. yeah. Okay, good. I gotta yeah. wait until I can see it with people. And I have to wait mm. until uh, literally never. <laughs> <laughs> Release the butthole cut. Release the butthole cut, indeed. Crash. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. Who knows what we might dig up on HBO or streaming free on Amazon Prime. Uh, movies. movies. We've got a lot of them to see. Uh, in the meantime, tell people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, Senior Editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, FightingInTheWarRoom.com, where you can listen to the episodes you can share with friends. Hey, and if you want to leave us suggestions, we have a quarter quote coming up, so maybe we, we need some ideas. So put them on there if you want. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a senior film critic for IndieWire. I'm currently watching my wife try to stealthily walk into the nursery where our son is sleeping. I don't know what she's trying to do. It is making me very nervous. Maybe like a surprise? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> surprise! Surprise! Oh, wait, crying now. Um, I, uh, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. Uh, you can find me at my kitchen table, nervously looking into the dark corner of our nursery. You can also uh, find us all on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Please leave us a review uh, so that we have some to read in our opening segment. So next week, we would love to hear from you. Thanks. Uh, and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA70. You can also find me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. We did not think we would uh, be in the hatch in real life as we wrapped up season two of Lost. But here we are. We got three episodes left. Uh, come come join us. And if nothing else, it's something regular and it will be going on well into next spring. Every week, an episode of Lost. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at uh, VanityFair.com and on the Little Gold Men podcast where we are doing a rewatch series as well. We are rewatching uh, essential movies about Hollywood. This week's is Casablanca. Uh great movie i'm not sure if you've heard about casablanca it is great and it's very short i think it's uh, it's really worth noting that it's like an hour 40 um because it's one of those like classic studio movies that like is not supposed to be a big deal so they just kind of made it cheap uh entirely in burbank anyway watch casablanca i run to it's not streaming free anywhere but it costs four bucks anyway uh you can find me on twitter at katie rich and you can find, uh, find all of us on twitter at f-i-t-w-r where you can talk to us about whatever or you can answer this week's lightning round question which was in honor of disney moving soul back to november do we still see mank this year <laughs> thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week